Lord, we thank You for Your Word, uh, for all that it means, for all that it says to us. We thank You for preserving it. And I pray that now You would speak to us through it. In Christ's name, Amen. Sermon text this morning is from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. See if they're printed in the bulletin. And it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we've come to another, um, just past another anniversary of the World Trade Center a disaster, and it seems like the memories kind of fade more and more each year as it passes as far as uh, um, what went on on that day. Of course, there are lots of commemorations and that sort of thing. My, uh, the company I work for is based in New York City, so they were sending lots of emails and, you know, certainly something that was on their minds. Um, I'm pretty sure all of New York and New Jersey were off work that day because I talked to them all day long on the phone. Um, they must have gotten that as a holiday. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the thing I remember probably the most clearly about the events of that day, uh, really just a couple of days following that, was the speed with which the, um, the cars that the hijackers were driving were rounded up, the apartments were, um, were located, the families were rounded up. You know, every friend, every relative that these people knew were just, you know, swooped down upon and, and, uh, taken into custody and questioned and and all this sort of thing um, and it's what was expected right i mean you you're coming under attack from uh, someone else and the natural response for a country to do is to um, bring them to justice find out who this is who brought this on us we need to bring them to justice um, retaliate uh, it's the way the world works it's an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth that's how nations and countries uh, are ruled. They're ruled by law. They're ruled by justice. Um, when we do something wrong, we expect somebody to probably do something wrong back to us. When someone uh, does wrong to us, they can expect uh, the same quite often. Um, doesn't mean it's always right, but uh, often that is what happens. Um, of course, what we want is peace. We want peace with each other. We want peace between nations. We want um, to have uh, harmony amongst mankind. Um, of course, the price for interrupting that peace is war. Um, and that's just what we expect. Uh, we're aware of this in our relationships with others. We, you know, um, we pick a fight, we expect to fight back. Sometimes we pick a fight on purpose, just because we want a fight back. Um, sometimes our wives figure out who we are and don't fight back. And... Uh, that just makes you want to pick another fight, but uh, that's just the way it works. Um, you're laughing because you know what I'm saying. Um, 
and that's kind of the most uncomfortable situation of all, is when the fight doesn't come back. Um, when the uh, war you've declared is met uh, not with a retaliation, uh, but with something else entirely. Um, that's kind of what this passage is about. It's about, um, it's about uh, sort of an unexpected peace that comes uh, to the disciples. Um, war has been declared and peace instead uh, breaks out. Um, let me set a little bit of context for this passage uh, before we get uh, to the, the first verse of it. It's a, a little bit of a strange period in the life of Christ. Uh, he's risen from the dead. He has um, died, uh, was buried, rose from the dead, and uh, there's this 40-day period where things are different. It's not the same relationship. Uh, Jesus doesn't have the same relationship to the disciples that he had before he was crucified. Uh, there's, there's some distance there. There's some... Um, Jesus sort of materializes in various places. He just shows up. It's, it's less of the sort of walking and talking with the disciples and you know, spending every waking moment with them and constantly teaching them and so forth. There's a distance that is growing there. Um, there's several places in the Gospels, especially uh, in Luke. Um, Luke, he, he shows up in a room and scares everyone. They think they've seen a ghost. Um, you know, this passage here is one of those where he just kind of appears out of nowhere. Um, and uh, another one on the, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, uh, the period of the road to Emmaus where he was with some disciples and then suddenly he was gone. Um, there's, there's some distance that's growing here. It's different. Um, he has a glorified body now, uh, yet he still bears the marks of the cross. He still has those scars. Um, he won't let Mary uh, touch him. When she finds him in, uh, outside the tomb after he's risen, you know, he says, no, don't, don't cling to me. I've not yet gone to my father. Uh, the relationship's different. I thought it was interesting. I was reading uh, Herman Bovink and in his uh, Systematic Theology, which, by the way, is really good reading. Um, if you've got time for four volumes of you know several you know maybe a thousand pages each, um, but it is really good reading. Uh, he said that the disciples during this period were being introduced to the practice of communion with the risen Lord. Um, he was there, but he was going away, and Jesus was kind of easing them into this. He didn't want to just suddenly disappear completely, but he wanted to ease them into um, the fact that he was going away. Um, another kind of illustration as, as to what's going on here, you've probably heard it, I know I've said it before, and, and others have too, um, I think Warfield actually came up with the thought that the Old Testament was like a dark room full of furniture. Um, you know, you, you get all these prophecies, you get all these sort of inklings as to what's going on, you, you have some sense that there's this Messiah coming, there's um, you know, you don't know how, you don't know when, you don't know what exactly it's going to look like. Um, so it's, it's sort of dark, but you know something's there because you keep bumping into it. Um, I have this experience every Saturday morning at 3.45 when I get up to go to work, and I have to move very carefully to not bump into the dog or the bed or something um, uh, because it's dark. 
And in this period, it almost seems as though the lights came on when Jesus shows up again. He dies. He comes back. Suddenly the lights are on. Suddenly the disciples get it. They understand what's going on. But now the lights are starting to go back out again. Jesus is preparing to leave again. And during this period, it seems as though Jesus is actually uh, preparing the disciples, giving them the ability to see in the dark so that when he is gone, they will understand what it means uh, to commune with him. Uh, We see this really clearly, I think, in Luke uh, chapter 24. Um, It's the story of the the road to Emmaus. And I just want to read that passage here. 24, uh, verse 30. And this is just a part of it, um, a part of the story. Um, This is after they've been walking for a while. They uh, sit down and and have a meal with with each other, uh, Jesus and these disciples. It says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered there saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus waits until they're at the table. He blesses the bread. He breaks it. And suddenly they know who he is, and then he vanishes. And there's just that kind of immediate identification of Christ with this bread that's just been broken. Suddenly, now they're really starting to understand the meaning of communion. They're starting to understand the meaning of what it means to commune with the risen Christ. He's not here, but he has left us things here to remind us of him, to um, act as, as pictures, if you will, of Christ. So Christ is helping his disciples learn to see in the dark. And it's one of the ways in which he shows them how to see in the dark is by showing them the mark of peace. Like I said in this passage, the lights sort of come on all of a sudden, kind of blindingly. You know, when you first turn on the light, first thing in the morning, you know, kind of bleary-eyed for a second, and then things adjust and come into focus. Um, and this, this passage here in John is uh, one such instance. Um, the lights come on. Suddenly the disciples understand and see what's going on. Um, and I think this is a partial fulfillment in this passage of uh, something that was spoken of a few uh, chapters back in John chapter 14. And let me just read that to give a little bit more context. Um, Jesus had said to them, These things have I spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You know, prophecy in scripture is often likened to mountain ranges. Um, you come up to, you see a mountain range up ahead, and you come up to it, and then you realize that it's not just this single row of mountains, but there are many other rows of mountains behind it. There's a lot more to it than you think it's going to be. Um, it's like that in the Old Testament a lot. There are a lot of prophecies that, are, that seem to be fulfilled very quickly. Uh, we think of Isaiah chapter 7 with the prophecy of uh, Emmanuel, this child that will be born. Well, right away there's this child born, but it's clearly a prophecy of Christ. There's this sort of immediate realization of it, and then there is uh, the future full realization of it. Um, I think in this uh, John chapter 20 here, we see kind of an immediate realization of what Jesus was talking about back in John chapter 14. Uh, he talks about the coming of the Spirit in here as well. Um, well, the Spirit, right, came in Acts 2. The Spirit came upon the church. But here we have very clearly Jesus is uh, telling them to receive the Holy Spirit. So we see sort of a partial fulfillment of what's going on. And so we enter in upon this scene in John chapter 20 in our passage this morning. Um, we come in on the scene of a few men in a room, uh, scared and sad because of the events of the last few days. Uh, Jesus had prophesied this too. In, in John 16, 32, he said, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. You're going to run away from me. So here, in chapter, in, uh, excuse me, verse 19 of chapter 20, uh, we have uh, the verse, On the evening of the last day, or of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So here they were, all of them behind locked doors afraid and trembling because of the Jews. And by now they've heard the announcement that Jesus uh, had risen, and my suspicion is that it was at this point that they went and locked the doors. Maybe they didn't know that Jesus had been risen. They didn't know this for sure. Um, even Mary, when she saw you know, who she thought was the gardener, said, where did you take the body? What's going on here? The first people that would be under suspicion would be his followers. Where'd the body go? How'd you get it? What'd you do with it? Once they found out the body was missing, they were going to come after them. So the disciples locked the doors. Mary had already told them, Jesus is risen, and they still locked the doors. Uh, here, Jesus had already announced at least to somebody that he had risen. Uh, someone had realized, Mary had realized that Jesus just might be who he said he was. Uh, of course, back then, the testimony of women was unreliable as evidence. It was not admissible in a court of law. So, you know, they sort of take what she said with a grain of salt, but we're going to lock the doors anyway, just in case. Just in case something's going on. But imagine the fear, too, that if Jesus really was risen, what that was going to bring on them. They deserted him. Peter had denied him. Everyone else took off running. They fell asleep when he was in the garden. They fled when the guards came. 
What if he's back now? What if it is true? I think that would be scarier than the Jews coming to get them. Here's the one who said he was the son of God, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and now he's back. Do you think he's going to be happy with you? Do you think he's going to let you off the hook here? Don't you think he might be upset? The disciples probably knew something of what we now call the Old Testament. They probably knew something of the history of Israel. They knew the wrath of God when Israel was unfaithful. I mean, read the book of Judges for an example. Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And God brings such and such a nation to come and enslave and oppress them. Over and over and over again, you see the cycle of Israel doing what was right in their own eyes. And God coming in wrath and judgment, punishing them, crushing them to the ground, getting them to this point where they were just a nation within a nation. They weren't even on their own land anymore. They were at the will of uh, the Romans. God had declared war on his own people time and again because of their unfaithfulness. And do you think that Jesus, the Son of God, would just let that go? Do you really think that he would let that go unpunished? And Jesus walks through locked doors. Now the fear is not of the Jews anymore, is it? Now Jesus is standing in front of them. The Jews are not a concern. Now Christ, the risen Lord, is there. And all of these fears come crushing in upon them. And what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. That's an ordinary greeting. People say it all the time. They said it all the time back then. People say it all the time now. Peace be with you. But Christ is coming with full divine right to bring down fire and brimstone on their heads. These people who deserted him and denied him, and left him in his darkest moments, full of unbelief, full of fear. And Christ comes and says, Peace be with you. And he shows them the marks of that peace. He shows them the marks in his hands, the mark in his side. And if they're thoughtful about it, they realize that the wrath of God that formerly had fallen always on their heads for their unbelief, on their ancestors, on the children of Israel over and over again for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, that wrath had fallen on Christ and not on them. He shows them the marks of peace, the marks where he'd been nailed to the cross just three days prior to that. It wasn't just proving to them that he really was Jesus. He was showing them, this is why I can tell you, peace be with you. Remember what he told his disciples just a few chapters back. I'm going away. I'm coming back. And he had come back. And when he saw that he came in peace, the disciples, Scripture records, that they were glad when they saw the Lord. Because the Lord had come in peace. And that brings us to the meaning of peace. You know, Jesus said, peace I give to you, a few chapters back, peace I give to you, not as the world gives, 
give I to you. What kind of peace does the world give? I was thinking about this, and it seems to me that the two kinds of peace that the world gives is conditional and temporary. Uh, Conditional, you do this for me, and I'll leave you alone. You stay off my land, I won't go to war with you. Uh, Leave me and mine alone, and I won't come after you and kill you. Um, or if, you know, for so many of the, the battles that go on across the earth, uh, you know, you're a particular race or nation, get off of my land, and everything will be just fine. Always conditional. And it's always temporary. Because maybe somebody does, for a while, get off their land. Maybe there are uh, peace talks or something. But it's always temporary. Somebody always messes it up. I'm so tired of hearing about Middle East peace talks. They're a joke. It's not going to happen. Somebody is always going to hate somebody else. There's going to be some sort of conflict. Somewhere, somehow, maybe not always in the same form, there's always going to be a conflict. In the Middle East, in Northern Ireland, all over the world, Africa, think of the things that are going on there. Peace never lasts. But this is peace of a completely different category. It's categorically different than anything we can imagine. And it really is the peace that passes all understanding. Because there's a sense in which it doesn't make sense to us. Because we're not getting what we deserve. We don't deserve this peace. We deserve the opposite. We don't have to gain it on our own. It was gained for us. And it's applied to us. And you know, it's not a feeling either. It's not as though Jesus were coming and saying, feel good, everything's okay. He was coming and telling them, you have a new position with me. Peace is your position. You are in a position of peace. It's a standing. It doesn't come through techniques we can use. It doesn't come through... um, yoga or meditation or anything, you know, even though you know, various things might be beneficial in a certain temporary, conditional sort of way, uh, it's not that kind of peace. It's a position. It's not necessarily going to make you sleep better. Um, this is kind of a loud peace that says you're right with God, despite what you deserve, because we know good and well we don't deserve it. We know good and well our own hearts. We know what we deserve. But this peace is ours through Jesus Christ. It's a world-altering peace. It's not just people getting along. It's not just uh, good feelings or harmony between people. It's escape from wrath and punishment of God that we deserve. And it's that escape so powerfully demonstrated to the disciples at this point that is then translated into the mission of peace. Because this peace also gave the disciples strength to participate in God's mission. You know, we have in the next couple of verses, we have another sort of strange episode. Uh, Verse 21, um, actually verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone... It is withheld.
What a weird thing. He breathes on them. There's some debate about what exactly is going on here. Um, some commentators say he, uh, he exhaled. Okay, why do we need to know that at this point? Um, if he's just merely exhaling, there's sort of probably a lot of that going on in the room. Um, I don't really see the value of that. Uh, I, I tend to take the passage at face value. He breathes on them. This is, what does this remind us of? It reminds us of Genesis. God breathing into man the breath of life. I mean, this is Christ uh, breathing new life into man. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.45, uh, the second Adam became a life-giving spirit. You know, there's something different going on here. He's breathing into his disciples uh, the new life. And then he says, uh, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. I don't think he's giving them special powers here. I think what he's doing is actually uh, setting the context for what they're to go do now. He's making them apostles at this point. They're not just disciples anymore. They're not just learners of Jesus. Now they're actually messengers to go out and to preach the good news. And he's telling them, here's, here's the limits of what this includes. And it's the forgiveness of sins. You're to go out and preach this gospel. And the gospel is something that um, is great and glorious to those who believe it, and to those who don't, it is judgment and condemnation. Uh, he's telling them, go preach uh, the gospel. And, you know, there's so much debate about the mission of the church and what the mission of the church should be. There's, there's a lot of churches that over the years have decided uh, that the, the chief and primary part of their mission is to uh, do good to other people. Uh, is to do you know social justice type things, mercy ministry type things, um, and I'm not saying those things are bad, but they're not the chief mission of the church. The chief mission of the church is the, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. When that becomes the focus, when when things like mercy ministry, for instance, becomes the focus. What kind of peace are we then offering the world? Conditional, temporary peace. Only things that maybe satisfy for a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few years. But nothing that will eternally satisfy. Nothing that will uh, finally give uh, what we really need. You know, the disciples aren't being told here that they will actually do the forgiving they're being told that when they tell someone their sins are forgiven, it's a, it's a passive sense that God has forgiven their sins and they are merely the messengers of that forgiveness. So there's no reason to think here that the disciples suddenly have some inherent power to forgive sins. But they do it because of what Christ has said he would do. And so we to partake of this peace that God gives. Despite our sin, despite all the things that we have done to not deserve it, God gives us this peace. And this peace gives us hope. It gives us confidence. It gives us perseverance. It gives us joy. Because we pass through this earthly battlefield every day 
being at war with each other, being at war with our neighbors. And we need to remember that the victory's already won, that it's kind of a fake battlefield in a sense. But the war was fought through the cross, and Christ bears the marks of peace. And because of that, we can have joy uh, throughout uh, these few years that we spend on this earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the peace that passes all understanding, for uh, looking on us, such unworthy creatures, and giving us something that we uh, cannot begin to comprehend, but can only praise you for. And we thank you for it. And I pray that as we go out from here, that we would remember the peace that we have with you and that knowledge of that peace would flow out through us, through our relationships with others, that others might know that peace as well. In Christ's name, amen.